0: Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak through your word in such a way that it challenges our preconceived notions about life and about eternity. And we pray today that as we look at Romans chapter 5, that you would give us clarity in how we look at it. That you would help us to understand plainly the meaning of this complicated text. And that you would continue to do your changing work in us for the sake of your glory. Amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is found on page 942 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And as you turn, you are turning to one of the more complicated chapters in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 is complicated because it considers some of the deep things about how God does his saving work in us, namely through justification by faith. You might might remember if you were here last week that the word justification means to be declared righteous. That God declares sinners to be righteous, and therefore He reconciles them to Himself when they put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the message of Romans chapter five at large, and that is the core of the gospel. That God's saving work, at its very core, is a declaration of you who are a sinner, to be declared righteous before him because of the work of Jesus. And he expands on this idea in the second half of Romans chapter 5 that we're going to look at today, in verses 12 through 21. And as we read it, or even before we read it, I want you to consider something pretty carefully with me. When you begin to explore some of the deep and mysterious truths about God... And about how God works, these truths will almost always offend certain sensibilities that you have. That's just the way that it is. God is not like us, His ways are not our ways. And so the categories that we have for experiencing life, when we look at the deep and even mysterious truths about God, these categories are challenged and at some times even need to change. God chooses to make some of the secret things known. And this morning, as we look in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, that's exactly what he's doing. And in doing so, you're going to see a... Section of Scripture that's quite complex in its nature. There will be parts of it that you probably don't like. And yet, in the end, it will bring you to a place of appreciating the glory of Christ and the incredible work of grace that God gives by justifying people through their faith. And so let's read Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12 together. This is what it says. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam To Moses, even though those sinning was not a type, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we're talking about spiritual truths to spiritual people. That's what expository preaching is. It's to make known the spiritual truths of the Bible, whether they be simple or complex, to the ears and to the hearts of people in such a way that they can understand and lift them up and ask God to use His truth to change us. And so we see a complicated passage here that I'm going to try very hard to make as simple as possible. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is to just state right up front the driving aim and the main point. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12-21, Paul is trying, and in fact succeeding, to show how Jesus Christ and what he gives is superior to Adam and what he gives. <laughs> and the main point is just very plainly this. Through our union with Adam, we receive the condemnation of Adam. But through our union with Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Think about that for a minute. and Just let that soak. Let it digest a little bit. Through our union with Adam, we receive the condemnation of Adam. But through our union with Christ we receive the righteousness of Christ. You see the word trespass and the word gift used a lot throughout the passage. The trespass is Adam's sin that enters the world. The gift is the righteousness of Jesus himself. And so we see that in the text, Paul is comparing Two people, Adam and Christ, the results of these two people, and he does so by this comparison and even contrasting them, and we might even say the realms that they represent. Now, comparison can be a really helpful tool. It's one thing to look at something and try to describe it and be effective. And you could do that. I mean, you could describe something and be effective. But sometimes it's helpful to take the thing that you're trying to describe and actually compare it to something that's already known commonly among the people that you're talking to. And in comparing it, it highlights the thing that you're trying to describe. So, for example, Amy and I used to live in England, and if we were talking to some of our friends from England, we would... They would say, what is Old North Church like? And we could describe Old North Church and we could describe the people of Old North Church and kind of the ethos of this community of believers and and what people in Youngstown are like and what the building is like and so on and so forth. But it might even be more helpful to compare that or contrast it with the church that we shared a common experience in in England. So we were in a little village Baptist church in England, and I would say something like, you know, at our old church, the church that we were a part of together, it was in the context of a village, and this is in the context of a, a suburbia. And so there's a very different village versus suburbia dynamic. And and you know how... One of the great things about Old North Church is that this group of people is a singing group of people. You know how sometimes at our Old Church, like if somebody didn't like the song, they would kind of sit back and they'd kind of grumpy. They would never do that at Old North when they don't like the songs. They would never sit way in the back and sort of wait for the music to get over. That's just not what these people are like at all. And and they're they're hungry for God's word. And so it doesn't really matter who preaches as long as the preacher comes and opens the Bible and the people sit up in the pew and they listen very attentively. Because they want to hear something from the Lord, not like our old church. Remember our old church where, where that one time that you preached, it never really happened when I preached, but when you preached that one time, it was like, I don't know, maybe 35% were sort of wandering off, looking at the statues on the wall. Uh, Pastor Marty was one of them. And 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 another 35% were maybe dozing off, and 35%, you know, the other 30% were listening. And Old North Church, these are joyous people. I mean, these people never complain about anything. Not like our old church where they would call the pastor and complain about the volume of the music or or they would complain about the controversial thing he said. They would never do those things at Old North Church. And, and, And so you get the point. Comparison or contrast helps make the thing clear. And so here Paul is comparing the work of Adam with its application to humanity and the results with the work of Christ and that work's application to humanity and the results. We might even call them two realms. And we, we see the point being that in Adam, there's sin. This sin is applied to all people and as a result, death reigns over all people because of this sin. It is the dominion of death. That's common to our human experience. We know that to be true. Everybody dies. It's just a matter of when and how. And he contrasts that to Christ who starts a different way, a different realm, and his mode of this realm is grace, and this grace is applied to all who are in the realm. And as a result of this grace, people receive the gift of his righteousness, and as they receive the gift of his righteousness, new life is what reigns. The people themselves actually reign in new life. And this comparison of the two is all meant to describe and even to highlight the great and mighty work of Jesus in justifying sinners before a holy God. It also highlights the core of our problem as humans. Because we see in this text, and I'll show it to you in just a moment, That our biggest problem, as humans, might not be what we initially think that it is. Our biggest problem, according to Romans chapter 5, is our connection to our father, Adam. That's a paradigm-shifting reality. Let me flush it out for you. Most of us go through life, and if we're Christians or if we're spiritual people, that we think that our biggest problem is our own sin, <laughs> our own individual sins that we commit, the things that we do that are bad. And, and certainly this is a big problem for us. Romans three twenty three is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your sins are a big deal in your life. They change the nature of your relationships with each other. They change the nature of your work. They change your nature of your relationship with God. But what we see in Romans 5 is that our sins aren't the biggest problem. There's an even bigger problem. The bigger problem is that we are mysteriously and corporately united to our father, Adam, who has sinned. And because we're united to him, we have the same consequences, of him. His sin lies on us and so does His condemnation. Let me show you just how big of a problem this is. Look with me at your Bible. This is listed at least five places here in Romans chapter 5 and it starts in verse 12. Verse 12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. And verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By his act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. Friends, we have a big problem. Because the one man that he's talking about is the father of us all. And if the father of us all has done these things and stands under condemnation, then all of his children fall under condemnation as well. According to Paul, that Adam's sin is not just applied to him. It's applied to us. We can't escape it, and we can't escape its effects. His sin is imputed to us, some of your translations might say. Our biggest problem is not the bad things that I do. It's that I am bad. (laughs) My biggest problem is not the sins that I commit. It's that I am a sinner. My wife is a beautiful, lovely, godly woman. Her biggest problem is not that we have tension at different points of our marriage because she does certain things that make me unhappy. Her biggest problem is that she's just not a good person. (laughs) Bo Tiger is sitting right here in the third row. He's the vice chairman of our elder board. And Bo, by God's grace, is growing in faithfulness and holiness to the Lord. We see that in him. We love that in him. And yet at the same time, the vice chairman of your elder board of the church is a bad person. Amen. And Paul makes it clear that this becomes the case because of our mysterious union with Adam our Father. We are connected to Him. And He is the representative of all of us. Now that's a very communal way of thinking. But He gets to it specifically in verse 12. Look at it again with me. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because of All sinned. Now that phrase, all sinned, theologians have spent hundreds of years and thousands of pages debating that one simple phrase. What does that mean? Does it mean that Adam represents us? And therefore as a representative for all humankind, all humankind has sinned? Does it mean that he infects us? That because we are his progeny, that his progeny have been infected with the strain of sin, doesn't mean something even more mystical. That through a mysterious union we have with him, that we actually participated in his sin in some sort of way. We don't have time to get into all the weeds and deep into the weeds of all the specific nuances of this point. But the one thing is for certain, and that is through the sin of our father Adam, we are uniquely connected. And united to him, and as a result, his sin is imputed to us so that we bear the condemnation of it. At the very least, that's what it means when he says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this offends almost all of our Western individualistic tendencies. The idea of a federal head that representative to us, it just sounds like it's not even fair. I mean, I want my choices to guide my destiny. I grew up in America. I've been told since I was this big that I can be whatever I want to be. I just have to work hard enough. And if I work hard enough, we live in the land of the free and the land of opportunity. Opportunity. If you work hard enough, you can be what you want. You can do what you want. You can have what you want. And so when Paul comes around and says that actually this communal idea of a representative head and having his work apply to me, whether I like it or not, when we hear that, that greatly offends our individualism. And yet this is precisely the place where God not only offends, but he challenges the categories by which we view our human experience. And where this takes us, it takes us into a conversation about the doctrine of original sin. Sin that we are born with, whether we like it or not. Sin that overrides a realm in which we live in, whether you know it or not. And it's okay to question the doctrine of original sin. It's okay to try to explore it and look at its different pieces to try to understand it more greatly. But between the verses that we've already read in Romans 5 and the symmetry of this passage that I'm going to get to in a minute, I want to ask you to stretch with me and to try to understand this idea in such a way that you're not constantly trying to undermine it, which is what we all want to do as individualists. Because understanding and even embracing the doctrine of original sin has absolutely massive implications for how you view reality. How you understand the human condition will inform what you see, what you think, what you feel, and what you do. It changes the way that you look at your own struggles in life, your struggles to sin, your struggles to pursue faithfulness. It changes the way that you look at that. Your understanding of the human condition changes the way that you view raising your children greatly. It changes the way that you view politics and voting. It changes the way that you view mass shootings like happened in Las Vegas last week. Your understanding of the human condition even changes the way you view your marriage, and it certainly informs your view on the evangelistic mission of the Christian. Original sin imputed to us from our father, Adam, that we cannot escape from of our own volition. And we see it especially in verse 19. Look with me. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is shown in other parts of the Bible, just even a couple chapters before this, Romans chapter 3. If you flip back one page, you'll see it in verses 9 and 10. Paul is talking about the righteousness of God versus the sinfulness of humans, and he uses some specific language in which he says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. For it is written, there are none who are righteous, no, not one. What does it mean to be under sin? <laughs> it means to be in a realm in which sin is the dominant characteristic. It means to have original sin that you can't escape from. It means that all of humankind sits under the weight and the yoke of this sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says something very similar. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. How can humans by nature be children of wrath? Because they're connected to Adam. Adam. Because they share his sin. Because as a result, they stand condemned. And the reign of the realm of Adam is death. Original sin is at the core of this passage. And it's at the core of the gospel that's being presented in this passage. So some of us might look at this passage and we say to ourselves... In an attempt to preserve our individualism, we will desperately try to cling to the notion that my personal sins are what caused me the greatest harm. We'll look at verse 12 and we'll say, because all men sin, and we say, well, that means my personal sins. But you can't let that stand when you look at the whole passage. If you say that my sins are what contribute to my condemnation instead of Adam's sin being imputed to us or us participating in his sin. If you say it's my sins that bring to my condemnation, then according to the symmetry of this text, the comparison and contrast, what must be the cause of your righteousness? If it's my sins that brings me condemnation, well then it must be my righteousness that brings me righteous standing before God. But what's the problem? You're not righteous. (laughs) Not Jesus is righteous in its completeness, not all of Jesus that He gives to you, but Jesus plus some things that I have to give or some things that I want to do. And then the comparison is lost, and the point of the text is gone. The comparison that through our union with Adam, We receive the condemnation of Adam through our union with Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, all of it. Nothing in my hands I bring. There's one place I can turn. There's one person that I can lean on. There's one gospel that saves us. And so let's shift gears a little bit. We've been spending a lot of time talking about our core of our biggest problem, our connection to Adam. But think about this with me. If that is true if the core of our problem in life is our connection to our father, Adam, and he is indeed the father of all of us, then what kind and how great a savior must there be to address this problem? This points us to the greatness of Christ. There are a lot of people in the world who can do a lot of great things. And You might just pick your favorite. You might pick maybe a local doctor. I've seen a lot of patients over the years. I think of my friend Abe Haddad. Great doctor. I've never seen him personally, so I can say that. But I'm sure he's a great doctor. I hear great things about his practice. He's seen hundreds, if not thousands of patients through the years. And as he has seen them, imagine with me for a moment that every life that he's touched, they all get together to celebrate the great accomplishments of our friend Abe. And they bring all of their families with them to this celebration. And then they ask all of their friends together. And maybe, maybe they get 15, 20, maybe 30,000 people that have been touched in some way by the needs addressed through Abe. A massive contribution to the human experience. 30,000 lives changed. And they all come together and they celebrate Abe. Maybe, maybe, let's just pretend for a moment that college football was really important somehow in the grand scheme of life. And so we got all of the Ohio State fans together who represent all generations that are still living right now and who are spread all throughout the country. All the Ohio State fans got together in one place that have not 100,000, not 500,000, maybe they have a million or more people who are fans of the Ohio State University and they all got together to celebrate Urban Meyer coach. He has made some sort of contribution to over a million people. What a life to live. What a great man. That's simply amazing. But if the chief problem of humankind, all of humankind, is that we are connected to Adam, and 7.6 billion people live on the earth right now, and they're all connected to him, how great a savior does there have to be to save them all? How great a savior does there have to be to save now thousands of years of human history of them all? Friends, this points to the greatness of Christ. Verse 14, we see that Adam is listed as a type of him who was to come. Well, what is a type? A type is a foreshadowing of one who's going to come after. It gives us a taste, a glimpse into one that's going to come later that, in some ways, is like him. How is Christ like Adam? He's like Adam in that what he does is going to affect all of humankind. Verse 15 starts to get us to the greatness of this Christ. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. What's the gift? Righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus himself. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, superlative language, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus abounded for many. Verse 17, the greatness of Jesus for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, again, much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You see, through our union with Adam, we receive the condemnation of Adam. But much more through our union with Christ do we receive the righteousness of Christ. Rejoice in the power of Christ. The significance of the cross, the perfection of of the Savior gloriously applied in grace to you. For if Adam's role as our father is strong, Jesus's role as our Savior is even stronger. And the implications for this is absolutely massive. If indeed there is one Christ who is set up to be the remedy Or to be the contrast to the one man, Adam, and his condemnation. Think about the implications. If the offense is applied to all humans, and it is, then the logic of the passage shows that all humans need the remedy. Jesus is not just a remedy for certain types of people. He's not just a remedy for the Jews. He's not just a remedy for people in a certain time or a certain place. He is the remedy for all of humankind throughout all of history. All humans participate in Adam's sin. All humans have access to the righteous gift of Jesus. Think about another implication. If the gift of righteousness is bestowed simply by grace, then this means that no matter how bad you are, you will have access to the same grace and be viewed as the same as the person next to you who might be way better than you are. Isn't that amazing? That this salvation is powerful enough to save killers, murderers, and rapists. Just as much as it is for the person who tells the little white lie because their problem is the same. It's not the sins they commit, it's that they are sinners. There's a question that I think needs to be asked here. And the question, as we've read the passage now in different ways over a couple different times, you'll notice the word being used quite often is the word many. Who is the many? That are being listed in verses 15, 17, and 19. Let me read a couple of them. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one, one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God. And the free gift of that grace. And that one man, Jesus Christ. Abounded for many. Who's the many? Verse 17. Says those... Who receive the abundance of grace. Verse 18 or 19, excuse me, says, "The many will be made righteous." At this point, you should be asking yourself the question, if you are one of the many?" <laughs> because if we're looking at two realms and two ultimate solutions that are very different than each other, but many are found in the good one, and all are found in the bad one, you want to be part of the many. Don't don't let this sermon or this text of Romans 5 pass you by as simply an explanation for the mechanics of God's saving work without letting God do his work in you. The very word of God before you that's designed specifically to encourage the many to have even greater trust in their Savior, greater reliance upon their Savior, greater hope for a future, greater understanding of the reality here and now and the grace in which they stand. We saw that last week. But also designed to bring some of those, maybe even here today, who are not yet part of the many into the realm of Christ himself. How does that happen How does one become a part of this group? How does one become part of the many? For Jesus Christ to step in as the perfect and second Adam, to do what Adam failed to do and to accomplish what Adam failed to accomplish, applied to the many, how do you become part of that group? Well, it says... In Romans chapter five, verse one, exactly how. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous, given the gift of Christ's righteousness, by faith, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you become part of the many? By faith. That's it. Faith, trust, trust, Reliance, the only thing that you can stand before God with on the day of reckoning is a reliance on the one who gifts you righteousness. That's how you become part of the many, the son of God himself. Faith is what unites you to Jesus. And therefore it gives you access to the realm of Jesus, to the gift of God's grace, to the gift of Christ's righteousness, and to the new life that abounds forever. Faith, that's it. Martin Luther once said that God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything. (laughs) And whoever does not have faith will have nothing. Have you put your faith in him? Or do you still have your faith in humanity? The son of God is greater than the father of humanity. So put your faith in him. We've talked about a lot of comparison. Think about a couple of contrasts with me as we move to a close. Look at the difference in the character of Jesus' realm versus the realm of Adam. Verse 15 tells us that the trespass brings death and it's a matter of principle and it's well-deserved, but the gift is undeserved and it's given only once. Look at the differences. Verse 16, the verdict of death came after only one sin, but the gift of grace comes after many sins and abounds even more and more as the sin increases. Look at the summary of the difference in verse 17. In Adam, death reigns. In Christ, people reign. In eternal life. Verse 21, Jesus, the perfect one, and that perfect obedience applied to you and to me, the manifestation of the love of God applied to you solely by his grace. Just a moment ago, we sang a hymn. We sang a hymn about this very work. And in the last verse, we sang these words. How can we possibly sing these words with any confidence if it wasn't for the work of Jesus? says, no condemnation. Now I dread because I'm living in a different realm. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. What does that mean? It means there was a head who was Adam, who brought sin and death to humanity, and now there's a living head, Jesus, who brings righteousness and life and grace and clothed in righteousness divine. It's no wonder that Jesus is talked about in such incredible terms in the Bible, All things are by him and for him. He is before all things. All things hold together in him. Colossians chapter 1 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Why? Because we're sons of Adam. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you indeed continue in faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Here it is, friends, two realms, two types of union. And then Romans chapter 6 and 7, we'll look at those realms even more closely. But for today, take great joy in that what Jesus offers is greater than what Adam offers. Through Adam and our union with Adam, we share in Adam's condemnation. But through our union with Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, to receive a righteousness that is totally foreign to us, simply by grace, to receive that grace once upon putting our faith in him, and to receive it every single day to keep us in him, to receive the results of the perfect son of God instead of the Sinful father of man, how great a savior have we? And we worship him now. Amen.